of Alpert and 200 Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of the podcast has co-authored a new book. He's co-authored a new book. The book is called In Pursuit of Pennants, Baseball Operations from Dead Ball to Moneyball. And he's co-authored it with Dan Levitt. Uh, like Levitt, Mark Armour himself has contributed uh, considerably to baseball's literary canon, writing multiple uh, biographies, has written, uh, qu- has published quite a bit with Sabre, Society for American Baseball Research, interested in biography and history. He's also written for Baseball Prospectus, for a number of uh, Maple Street Red Sox annuals, etc. In his current project, uh, he and Levitt look at baseball operations departments, certainly with a with a focus on the general manager, who generally is at the center of those. Uh, the history of the baseball operations department, it goes back to 1920, it turns out, is one real fact you learn from the conversation that follows. What else you learn from the conversation that follows uh, is about Mark Armour, how he lives in Oregon, he grew up in New England, assorted ballparks he's visited, innovations introduced by uh, baseball's GMs and who introduced them in that manner of thing. Mostly, uh, the idea has been to have a pleasant conversation, and I think that that objective has been realized. I do. What is it? It's Fangraph Sadio. It features Mark Armour, author of In Pursuit of Penance, and it begins right now. And uh, as I mentioned, in the, uh, I'm very I'm curious about your current project, but I'm also curious about other projects. And also, uh, you, you've never been on you've never been on the program. And uh, we, you and I, have met a couple times, but I don't think we've ever had a, I've never had a chance to uh, get a sort of complete sense of of your uh, trajectory in terms of baseball research. And I, I think there's a pretty substantial one. So I'm curious about it all, I guess. So wherever – the idea is to have a good conversation. That's the idea. Okay. Yeah. But I think let's start here. You were in uh, – you're in Corvallis, Oregon, right? That's right. So for you in terms of interacting with the game in a live sense, is it is OSU the the way to go? Yeah, although honestly, I mean – you know, the last several years I've been raising kids and, and doing a lot of other stuff. I haven't really gone to as many OSU games as I used to. When I first moved here, I went often before they really got great, and it was pretty easy to get tickets. And then once they became a great team in the in the mid-aughts when they had the, – um, they made a few College World Series and won it twice – and then it became a very difficult ticket. You had to sort of plan it out in advance and, you know, buy big packages – and since then, I've only gone a few times. So my there is a in terms of getting an actual uh, baseball fix. There's a college there's a college age wooden bat league that has a team in town, and they play here all summer. The Corvallis so like, the Corvallis Knights, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So um, and so we we go see them because it's it's um it's more of a family thing. You can just sort of show up and. Most of the games are easy to get tickets for unless they have fireworks, and uh, so that, that's sort of where I would go if I if I just want to hear the crack of the bat. Um, in terms of going to, you know, bigger games, you know, there's a few minor league teams around that I try and go to once a year or so, and then and then of course I make trips up to Seattle and and the Sabre Convention and whatnot. But I'm I'm not I'm not in a place where I can go to a, a couple of baseball games a week like when I lived in Boston for so many years. Um, it was a little bit easier, but um, 
I do what I can. Right. The um, I remember. So not. I think it's not crazy far from you. Uh, I went down to. Uh, is it the Eugene Emeralds? Does that sound right? That's right. And so they, they still exist. Yeah. So there's a the Northwest League, which is a short season, um, uh, a ball. Uh, team. They have a team in, there's a uh, team in Eugene, there's a team in Salem, and there's a team in Portland. And the, the Eugene and Salem t- teams aren't very difficult to go to. I used to go to the Emeralds often because they had a really old WPA era, uh, ballpark, um, that was really a kind of a fun place to, to go to. And, s- and just a few years ago, when the Oregon Ducks got their team back, they didn't have a team for 30 years. Um, once Oregon got their team back, they built this huge, um, much more sophisticated sort of stadium that a modern stadium where both the Ducks and the Eugene Emeralds played. I haven't been there yet. Um, it's much, much more of a modern kind of a mall park on a smaller scale, I believe. Um, I, I have nothing against it. I just haven't been able to make it down. But the Emeralds yeah. would be the easiest team to go to for me. Yes, uh, yeah, that Emeralds, I actually went to one game at that previous Emerald Stadium was it like it was something Memorial Stadium or something like that. It was Civic Stadium. Civic Stadium, yeah, which is a great I honestly I I'm not I'm not lying. I think that's a great name for a park. It's uh yeah. very simple and informative in it and I don't know it, perhaps because of the WPA attachments there is a sense of uh uh what it's like a there's a sense of like a civic togetherness, civic unity. Yeah, I think it was like that. I think people you know, we we you we I would park you know, sort of three quarters of a mile away and then like walk through neighborhoods to go there. Um, because, you know, that's just where it was and it kind of was, it kind of blended in with the neighborhood and, um, um, it, yeah, those are good feeling when you were there. It really, it really felt like you could have been sitting in, you know, 1950 and, um, it, it really was a kind of a fun experience. Yeah. And there was one thing about that park. There was a sort of, I believe it was all wooden or mostly wooden and, a lot of the grandstand area uh, behind the plate was there was a there was a large overhang and it was constructed such that a foul ball um, and there were multiple of these hit during the, a foul ball would if it were um, left the batter's bat in the right way it would go up off of the overhang this wooden overhang the wooden roof essentially and it would come it would really uh rocket down with some velocity into yeah. into the stands it was a little bit dangerous right it was quite loud too. <laughs> it was like it, 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 if you it it gave you like a split second a little bit of warning because you'd hear the smack behind you and then you'd have time if you happen to be dozing off um that you better be ready have you ever been actually i think what uh, it was at a saber meeting and, and you actually might just because you have sort of extensive knowledge of baseball history you might be already be aware of <laughs> There was there was a saber meeting that I attended at the Portland Public Library. It would have been uh, 2009, 2010, and uh, I forget who it was. Told the story of an executive's wife in attendance at a Washington Senators game, I think, who was hit by two foul balls in the same game. She was hit, and then as she was being stretchered off, <laughs> stretchered out of the park, she was hit again. <laughs> You know that story sounds familiar to me, but I, I I don't think I can paint any more details than what you just said. But but I, I I've heard the story before. I, I don't I don't remember why, but um, it's probably true. I mean, most stories <laughs> have some genesis and truth. I I believe it. Have you ever Have you ever uh, witnessed someone get really whacked? I mean, I I'm I'm taking I recognize that I it seems like this I'm gleeful about it. 
and I recognize that people are getting hurt. But um, do you have you ever seen anyone get really really whacked by a foul ball? Well, you know, I was I was at a game in Boston once, and I, this actually um, you, it was a video that was often shown for um, years later before Red Sox games, or you know when they. Maybe when they showed the intro um, to to the next game or something, there was a game where um, somebody it was it wasn't close to me, but it, I think I was on the third base side, and, and the batter hit a, like a line drive that went into the stands on the first base side, and it hit a fan, and I couldn't exactly tell, but I, I, you could tell that it was hit you know, quite hard. But what was interesting about it was that Jim Rice, who was on the in the on deck circle, actually saw this sort of commotion and went over there and actually car- actually picked the person up. It was like a child, I believe, <laughs> and, and and carried this person out onto the field and then through the dugout down into the clubhouse to be cared for. So this was, you know, as you imagine, pretty touching um, to to see because. I mean, Rice sort of had the reputation at that time of being, you know, kind of a gruff guy and everything. Um, but my other thought was that, you know, here's this this man that comes and takes your child away from you, and um, I don't remember the parents following Rice, but you know, hopefully they they all got <laughs> reunited at some point. I mean, <laughs> I think it all worked out fine. Yeah, but. good, good, <laughs> good. Um, I uh, yeah, that's uh, well, Jim Rice, right? He he was known. Or at least the argument in my uh, my experience growing up with um, you know baseball media was the Boston baseball media, and so that sort of uh, permeates a lot of my thinking. But the especially with regard to Jim Rice, who was wasn't he what the scariest scariest hitter of his generation or something like that? Wasn't that sort of the thing that catapulted him into the Hall of Fame? That he was feared. Yeah, yeah. The most feared hitter, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. And and now how are you – now you've lived in Corvallis for a while, but how are you also – how did you do so much work? You said you were in Boston for a while. What, what was that all about? So I grew up in Connecticut, and my family, going back m- many generations, uh, are from the Boston area. Um, so you know, the Nor- I still consider myself a Northeasterner, but I moved to Oregon – in like 1994, so I've been here for you know 20 years, um, and uh, so I've been to a lot more games in Boston than anywhere else mm-hmm. uh, because it was just more convenient for me. I lived there for uh, I lived there at a time where, where I could go to before they got really hip. Um, I was able to go to 20, 25 games a year and and often make you know day of game decisions about whether to go. I think those days are long gone back there. When was the uh, – that's an interesting question. When do you think was – my, uh, from my experience, which is a, um, which is not one that should be considered um, gospel in any way, that there was, a, there was a change after the acquisition of Pedro Martinez. And whether, whether it was because of Martinez himself or because the team got very good because Martinez was, was the best – um, it, that seemed to be that seemed to be a difference maker. But do, do you have a, a sort of a different perspective on it, or, or does that uh, resonate with you as well? Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I mean, they got so it got sort of gradually more relevant um, through the you know starting in the mid '90s, um, much more relevant when they got Pedro. I think Pedro was exciting I, when I was when I lived there. 
we used to go, so we would decide at work, you know, and we'd be at work and somebody would say, hey, you want to go to the game? And we would go because Clemens was pitching. And mm-hmm. so Clemens would pitch, you know, every five days or so. So when, if they were home, uh, we would, we would literally go to, you know, almost all of Clemens' starts because that was, he, he was the guy. And, and there were several years there where, where, you know, Clemens was the only good pitcher they had. So, um, he would be the guy you'd want to go see. I think Pedro sort of replaced Clemens, although I think, I think Pedro was always quite a bit more loved sort of personally. He was just much more exciting. I think Clemens was, just seemed, seemed a little bit less approachable and, and whatnot. So I think Pedro was a little bit more exciting. And the teams, I think, got more exciting in that time. But I think, I think it was sort of gradual throughout that period. And then I think when the new ownership took over, they kind of kicked it up a notch because I, I think the old ownership didn't spend a lot of time. It's sort of this, this problem you have that if you're trying to get a new park, that the last thing you want to do is is fix up your old park because the argument you're making to the taxpayers is that your old park is is substandard. So the last thing you want to do is make it less than substandard. So it kind of fed upon itself that, that the, the ballpark was sort of you know, virtually or you know, figurative, figuratively falling apart, and they weren't really doing anything about it. And they weren't really promoting, and they didn't really have any of that sort of the bells and whistles they have now with with the you know the the food court and all this other stuff. And so when I went back, I, I, I've been back several times over the years, but the first time I went back when they had the you know the Yaki Way closed off and everything. It was just a whole different thing. It's like a big party there now. I mean, every game is like a party. Yeah, that well, that was uh, striking when that first happened. Yeah, as you know, as you mentioned, they they closed off Yaki Way, so only ticket holders could could go down. Right. Yeah, that was a that was a strange move. Even um, I, I guess I'm I'm not a child anymore, but I am a 35 year old person, which isn't the oldest thing. And right. uh, I even remember when you could go down there. My my mom has memories. She grew up with sort of the what she would probably remember as the Petroselli the Petroselli era mm-hmm. uh, Red Sox. And she says, and uh, she is prone to hyperbole and exaggeration and lies. But she says that there was a time when you know she would be in the bleachers and people would just bring in coolers with beer. Do you think that she's lying to me, or do you think she's telling the truth? It didn't happen in my period but but i i suspect she's telling the truth um honestly uh but there was there was a time when and this is probably hard for for you to understand and it's even hard for me to understand to some extent but there was a time when if if there were few enough people going you you could actually sneak in a cooler of beer so so even if it wasn't allowed because you know it wasn't like there were a hundred ushers around, or even ticket ticket takers. You know, you just kind of go through the. <laughs> you, you just you distract the right person, and 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 you'd bring stuff in. I mean, I I think I have brought my share of things into Fenway Park, but it was you know as again it was in the eighties, and I would expect in the sixties it was it was even easier. Right. <clears throat> did you have a uh, Did you have a Walkman with Bon Jovi slippery and wet as you were entering? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, I do remember a time when uh, a friend of mine had his camera confiscated, which is really funny because now everyone has a camera, right? Everyone has a camera, and it, it would be—you can just imagine what it would be like if they kept those rules going. Where, so, sorry, but put your phones in that little 
plastic bucket over there, and you can pick them up on the way out. That would be, yeah, that's unlikely to happen. That's, that's very unlikely. Yeah. So they sort of gave up on that because there was a period when they were just concerned. I don't know what they were concerned about that you would take all these photos and then and then you know make an art book or something out of it. I don't know, but. Um, uh, but yeah, they didn't. They didn't want that. So uh, let's start now. When did you? I, I mean, it's, it, you've been a fan for a while. That doesn't seem to be a case. And, and I do know. Uh, well, of course, baseball fans can be from anywhere, but uh, there are certain <coughs> fan bases that probably, or certain clubs, regions that produce um, more committed fans. And certainly, New England is one of them. Uh, the Red Sox have that sort of reach. When did you begin publishing? And uh, either in Sabre or and I, I know you wrote for Baseball Prospectus certainly at some point as well. When did you begin publishing and what was sort of the – what were you sort of – what did you want to cover? What did you uh, – what did you – what was sort of gnawing at you that you wanted to explore? You know, I would say that I was – I've always been somewhat of a generalist um, in, in that I, I kind of liked – I mean I like you know, 20th century history um, – I, I say 20th century history because in in Sabre, um, you know that there there are people that think that if you're not interested in the 17th century origins, that you're not really, you know, you're not really a true historian. Um, but um, but you know the more re, you know more recent stuff and you know the major and the major leagues more than anything else certainly um, more than you know the Negro leagues they have their own experts or the minor leagues or or whatever um, and. The first time I think I was published was is definitely by Sabre. So I've been in Sabre for a long time when I was first out of college. And for many years I was, uh, like most people, it's sort of a consumer of what other people were doing. This is pre-internet and pre, um, you, you know, the, you, you didn't really have the ability to read this kind of stuff really anywhere else. So, so you, just get the publications from Sabre, and they seemed very fascinating to me. About either obscure historical people, or even you know what we would now consider sort of rudimentary Sabre metrics, and be kind of learning things about the game I didn't know. And, and I was probably content with that for a long time. And it wasn't until probably the late '90s that I I started to get more involved, and and there started to be a lot of email correspondence. You know, because everyone was online, and um, and I published a couple of things with Saber, just sort of feeling my oats. Um, and um, but I, I've always been, you know, a lot of people think of Saber as, I mean, a, a bunch of historians, and other people think of it as a bunch of stat heads. And I've always been comfortable in both both of those camps. So you know, I've I've always been able to get a lot out of it. Um, but in 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 probably about a decade ago or more now, um, probably yeah maybe 15 years ago, I started to become interested more than anything else in in team building and how teams sort of came together, which is why I was interested in baseball prospectus. Um, and I started I wrote for them for maybe a year and a half or so, but um, I was interested in the work they were doing because they were sort of talking about uh, the game. Sort of in that way, they would talk when they talked about the, you know, Atlanta Braves. They wouldn't be talking exactly about um, the state of the Braves today, but exactly how this plan is is evolving. You know, how it's coming together. What what they did 
five years ago that got them to this point and where the trajectory is potentially going to be, et cetera. And um, that that became, you know, the thing I was interested in probably more than anything. And a lot of the um, my own research and writing in over the years, um, not all of it, but a, a good chunk of it has been has been focused on that in history it, throughout history uh, what's going on today absolutely and then sort of how that how that plays out with what was going on in the past as well yeah well it's obviously i mean it's, it's something i know that myself and i'm guessing a number of people who read fairgraphs became it's a, uh, something of which they became acutely aware with moneyball you really understand with that publication, uh, with its flourishes, uh, that that in terms of um, you know building a team, there are a couple of people who have uh, authority over that. And so, to you know, on the one hand, you are cheering for the players, you're cheering for the colors of the team, but you're also cheering, you're essentially cheering for the genius of your your general manager and your baseball operations staff as well. Right. Um, so, so and and that's something that I think. Um, occurred to a number of people with with the publication of that book. Now, with this with this new book uh, you're writing or you've written, I guess, uh, of course, uh, with Daniel Levitt, Dan Levitt. It's called In Pursuit of Pennants: Baseball Operations from Dead Ball to Moneyball. This is, um, I suppose, this is interesting, and this is kind of the next logical step for people with any sort of historical interest. Is oh, uh, we know how uh, Billy Bean did certain things, or we have some sense. And since since those Oakland teams and after, uh, we've probably gotten, um, and I'm speaking for myself in large part here, become um, progressively more familiar with how teams are constructed. But I could tell you from my from my perspective, looking back from Billy Bean and those Oakland A's teams, uh, there is. Uh, uh, there's a lot more emptiness there. There are a lot of vacancies in terms of my knowledge set. I know. I know that Branch Rickey existed. Uh, right. And he was really good, and I know that a lot because of Jackie Robinson, but also because um, uh, Jackie Robinson was also a product of Branch Rickey's, you know, sort of open-mindedness and uh, in terms of development. Um, and I also my my other point of reference, and, and I'm sure this is a text with which you're somewhat familiar, is uh, uh, Dollar Sign and the Muscle. Yeah. Um, Kevin Corain or Karani? Do we know? Uh, you know, I don't know. I guess I always assumed it was Corain, but, um, but I don't know the answer to that. Let's say Corain. Let's say Corain for the moment. Okay. And, and you do get a sense, if not necessarily of general managers in that, you do get a sense of, uh, talent evaluation in its history from the point of the scout. And scouts and general managers to some degree are, you know, there's, there's a relationship there where you're attempting to evaluate talent and, and acquire it. Well, uh, when does the general manager position start, though? And and who is that person? Well, I don't think it's it's totally clear. I mean, the answer to the first question is pretty clear. It starts about 1920 um, or so. And and of course, the, the tricky part is that a lot of these people weren't necessarily called a general manager. It wasn't like someone said, oh, by the way, you're a general manager. You're the first one, right? It was – they had, people had different titles, but then they later – at some point, everyone started to have the same title. But before then, they might have been called – like Ed Barrow, who's probably one of the more famous general managers ever, who – 
who was you know, with the Yankees at the time of Ruth and Gehrig and whatnot and, and was, is responsible for, as anyone, for building all those teams. He was never called the general manager. He was the business manager. Um, and then you've had other people that might be – and even that's even true today. There are people that – uh, are called, you know, the president of baseball operations or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny you mentioned it because now we've seen this, especially the last couple of years, where uh, you know, uh, Theo Epstein, uh, you know, and um, a, a couple other notable cases uh, that I'm totally neglecting. Um, Andrew, Andrew Friedman, I think, has a, a highfalutin title too. Right. Um, but they're essentially it's, and, and this is the point of your text, right, which is to evaluate those people who are like the top guy in charge of baseball operations. Yeah, I mean, so so baseball oper- baseball operations is is a term that I didn't I never heard of until a decade or so ago or, or whatever. But but ba- but basically, what it, it's one of those terms that everyone knows what it is, but no one ever used the words that the, the person that we think of as the general manager when we were growing up. I mean, that person is is no longer a person. That person is now a department. But but. But baseball operations, which is the name of the department most of the time, their, their, their job is much the same as it was um, 90 years ago or whatnot, which is basically to find players, to acquire those players somehow, to develop those players, assuming that the players are, are young, and um, and um, to evaluate those players. And all of those four things that I just listed have evolved over time. I mean, the, the way we evaluate players has certainly changed, and that's what Moneyball is about. Um, the, the acquisition of players has changed because the rules have changed in terms of free agency and adding the draft and, um, and whatnot. And how to find players has changed because we used to just find white guys, and now, <laughs> now, we're, now we're traveling all over the world to find players. Um, and the development has obviously changed because farm systems are much more sophisticated. And each of these changes have, has involved hiring like more people. So, I mean, Branch Rickey didn't have that many people working for him because his job, and I'm not taking any, anything away from it at all, but it was not comparable to what Theo Epstein's job is because he, he didn't have as many things to do. Um, as well as he did them, and as much of a genius as he as he had, he didn't have he didn't have to have a, a, a video staff, right? Uh, so the job has become much more complicated. So it makes sense that um, that you're going to have you well, know, more. The, yeah, I, well, I, video. I, to be fair to him, video didn't exist yet. I don't think. Well, that so, was a problem. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that, film, that, I guess. That, yeah. that, that held him back to some extent. <laughs> That's true. Um, I guess it's I mean, the same way we do, right? Like if you are going to evaluate a batter from 1935, um, or even you know, I mean, in, in evaluate him relative to the league now. Like we do have certain ways of adjusting for context, right? And I think that's at some level that's what you're doing, whether it's the amount of resources available to that general manager, or whether it's the era in which he flourished. You're looking at these uh, – the heads of these baseball operations departments relative to the context in which they existed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so, like, yeah, obviously Branch Rickey doesn't have a video department because uh, – well, you, you would have to have uh, – you would have to have film, right, at every – at every, uh, what, major league game you play, every minor league game you play. Right. And And – 
and, and I'm sure Ricky had film, and I'm sure that Ricky watched the film. And he he did whatever he could do. I mean, Ricky was a guy that I think um, the reason one of the reasons he's a genius is because I think that when he woke up in the morning, he thought about ways to make his team better without being restricted to the way it's, it had been done before. Um, so he was able to come up with the idea of the farm system, which seems um, – like somebody eventually would have thought of it, but he was the guy that thought of it, and he was the guy that's maybe we'd be better if we had block players. Um, and, and, <laughs> it's, and, you know, it's, it's so it's so obvious slash sad. <laughs> it's hard not to uh, <laughs> not to chuckle. Uh, yeah, maybe if we just maybe if we allowed every human. Maybe we we'll humans, all the humans, to participate. Right. So, so when we t- when we talk about integration in our book, which we do, uh, we don't talk about it in the ways that um, it's generally talked about, which is as a as a moral and ethical um, you know flourish that was necessary, and that that's that is the proper way to talk about it almost all the time. It was it was a it was an incredible. Act and and Ricky deserves all the credit in the world for it. The way we talk about it, though, is what did this mean for the Dodgers and what did this mean for Major League Baseball? And what it meant for uh, Major League Baseball is that you suddenly were opening up the the most awesome pool of untapped talent that had ever been opened up in the history of the game, and that's still true. That you suddenly had Hall of Famers for the for the taking. Um, and for the most part, um, the teams that jumped on that, I mean, it's one thing to be first, but being second has a lot of value as well. Um, the teams that jumped on that, you know, generally became really good, not surprisingly, um, because, you know, this was a, a time when people were spending, you know, Record-setting amounts for uh, you know two hundred thousand dollars for bonus babies and whatever, or you could get Hank Aaron for five thousand dollars. You know, your choice. Um, and the, the the people that 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 signed the black players um, that ended up being a pretty good deal for them. Um, is is do you think that there's uh, I mean is there some obvious correlation <laughs> do you think between I don't know of the winning percentages or something along these lines of those teams, which most quickly, um, uh, most quickly uh, took to signing black players and the the success of those teams. I mean, is it is it a pretty strong correlation? Do you think? Well, it's funny. Um, it, it it is. Um, I don't. I think that we may have tried to play with that a little bit because we have all the data. Um, and we've, we've had the big database from, from of of uh, the of integration, all the black players and all the teams, and and their their the war percentage, you know, for for African Americans for every team for the first thirty years. Um, there, there's just a, there's a lot of noise in the data, but what's particularly interesting about it is that in the National League, the National League integrated much more quickly. Uh, the Dodgers, the Giants, the Braves, those three teams dominated the, na- the National League for the first, you know, 10 years uh, after Robinson came around. And then the Cardinals were a little bit late, but once the Cardinals got on board, then they, they ended up having great teams after that. But in the American League, which was, of course, dominated by the Yankees, the Yankees were pretty slow in integration. And I think that the American League, in comparison to the National League, I, I don't think I know, 
was much further behind um, on integration. And I think that um, some of that was because the Yankees didn't do it and other teams didn't, you know, maybe were tended to imitate the Yankees. But part of that is that the American League was just not as good. They, they, they had a lot of undercapitalized teams and they didn't really think outside the box. They were barely even trying half the teams. And the Yankees were able to continue to, to dominate. And plus they had really good white players. So they were able to, to, you know, keep ahead of most of the competition for a while. Um, but then it was what is the, the thing I always mention when people, when I try and defend the idea that the American League was, was so far behind and, and therefore all of the players I think in the, that played at that time should be in your head. You should somehow adjust them for what league they played in, in my view. That, uh, Frank Robinson, who was a great player, but certainly not by no means the best player in the National League. I mean, there were many great, there were many Robinson-like players in the National League. When he was traded to the American League in, uh, in 1966, it was, you know, and, and the, oh, the, uh, general manager who traded him is oft, often criticized for, for saying that, well, he thought he was kind of, you know, he was an old 30, he was getting a little up there, it was time to maybe pass him on. Mm-hmm. And then he came, to, and then he came to the American League, and of course he became the best player in the league immediately. And I think some of that is because, you know, he obviously, it was it was a misjudgment on the part of the general manager to trade him, but some of it I think is that he was going to a much easier league, and, and I think that he 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 went from being a very good player to a great player just by just by ch- moving to the other side of the of of the game, and I I think uh, but I think to answer your question I I never really did. Um, yes, I think that absolutely the teams that integrated uh, f- early and more aggressively. Um, we're better. And I guess, like, I, I mean, it, it, this idea, especially since Moneyball, or at least um, for people like myself, since Moneyball, this idea of exploiting inefficiencies uh, has become a pretty common one. And again, uh, for someone like uh, who's a dummy like myself, there's, you know, that goes back to Billy Bean and then before that, Branch Rickey. Are there other general managers and perhaps this is you know an important factor for you in deciding you're currently running a series in the top 25 GMs but are there other GMs who might who, who you believe were as uh, demonstrated as much ingenuity as a Bean or a Ricky um, in terms of exploiting those those ingenu- those um, inefficiencies yeah I think so and sort of like so if what our book is largely about in a nutshell is sort of two it, – it's, it's I mean, it reads like a history, but there's sort of two things going on. One is that the game is changing, that these – these um, the context that these people were playing in was changing in terms of, uh, in terms of um, you know, whether there was a farm system or not or, or the rules of the game and, and certainly, you know, where you can find the players and what players are allowed to play and all these things are changing. But – in addition, our, our sort of overarching point is that the teams and the men, and they've all been men so far, um, that most took advantage and acted upon these changes um, are the teams that succeeded. And the changes can be, in the case of something like analytics or even the case of 
starting the farm system, they can be sort of something that you do yourself that other people then follow. Um, and that's kind of what you're, you're talking about. And I think that a lot of the better GMs are people that sort of, I guess, to use an, an oft-used phrase, think outside the box. Um, and you know, Pat Gillick is, is kind of an interesting story because Gillick is, at the time of Moneyball, he was sort of the anti-Bean. He was, he was in, you know, he was in Bean's division at the time, competing with him, and competing with him on, on equal footing. I mean, the Mariners and the A's were the best two teams in in the in the West at that time, and and Gillick was held up as sort of the 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 king of the old guard because he was an old scout and he was sticking up for his scouts and um, whatever. And he he didn't criticize being exactly but he did say you know that this this there's more to the game than than this book is saying etc however what's interesting about gillick is that his his um his career and his success is largely uh predicated on the fact that he was so innovative um that he he did think outside the box i mean he was he was one of the first um GMs to spend a lot of time in the Dominican, um, for example, and and the Blue Jays, the Blue Jays were a team that exploited the Dominican in the 80s much more than any other team had, uh, and, and he got way ahead. He exploited the Rule Five drafts um, at a t- before that anybody was doing that to the point where no one can exploit it anymore because teams are just too much smarter about who they leave available in the Rule Five draft, but but. Uh, Gillick got like, you know, six or seven guys that ended up being on his postseason teams that, you know, from the money draft, including George Bell, who won an MVP. Um, and he was an innovative scout, um, that, <clears throat> that I think was ahead of his time in terms of, in terms of instruction and, and whatnot. You know, Bob Housem, who was, who was the GM of the, of the Reds, had people working for him that were doing, um what you would consider almost like proto analytics in that they were he he had somebody he, he would re- people working for him that would read like scientific journals sort of looking for edges and there was a guy that convinced him that the reds eyesight would be better if they had a different color on the under brim of the hat and and he, he actually, they actually remanufactured their hats to have this like, I don't know what it was like, off gray or something, which would be less reflective. Um, so this was I, the, uh, this was the big red machine. Uh, exactly. We're talking about. Yeah. And, okay. and I think regardless of whether this was worked or didn't work, I think that it's what it's, what it's, I think is telling is that, th- is that these are people who really were trying to gain an edge. And that's really what analytics is, right? Analytics is, is trying to find a way to gain an edge. I think that Moneyball was 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 subtitled something like uh, you know winning in an unfair game or something like that because Bean was um, the, the the theme of Moneyball was that he was uh, undercapitalized yet still winning, right? And and use, using is is so Bean was trying to figure out ways to. Um, compete against people that had money and and to find an edge, 
And the problem with finding an edge like Bean did is that other people, if it's a, if it works, then other people are going to do it too. And then you have to find another edge. Um, and I think that's that's another theme that goes throughout uh, baseball history is that you know when you have the first farm system, you're going to be way ahead of everybody else. But once everyone else has a farm system too, then you aren't ahead of them anymore. So you need to come up with something else. And I think that guys like Ricky and and the most successful people generally were smarter than other people. So they 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 stayed ahead. Uh, one last question for you. And I'll let you go. Uh, Neil Huntington. Ben Sherrington, uh, Dan Duquette, Chris Antonetti. I think that's all of them, but it may not be all of them. Uh, they're all either attended Amherst College or UMass Amherst, and they're all uh, pretty talented major league GMs. Is there any reason why that would be the case? And Oh, and I should say, no, two other guys uh, in your list. Dalton, Dalton. No, sorry, right. Dan Duquette, and then and uh, what's Dalton's first name? Harry Dalton. Harry Dalton, right? Harry Dalton, also an Amherst grad. Well, in the case of uh, in the case of Duquette, I can say that it's um, slightly less than a coincidence because he may have gotten his. I think he got his first job from Dalton, and I think the way he got it was he wrote to him as a kid and said, "Hey, I went to Amherst too." So, <laughs> so that helps. And, and whether that's true of any of these other guys, I can't tell you. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it maybe to some extent, you know, if you go to, you go to Amherst and you're Neil Huntington and, and, and you love baseball and, and maybe the, the, the model of, of somebody like Harry Dalton or Dan Duquette is in your head like, hey, I could do that someday. Yeah. Um, and then maybe he comes back to speak and you're, hey, I went to your college. Absolutely. Yeah. Just like at Harvard, I think people go to Harvard and they think, hey, I could be president. Whereas, you know, if you go to Bowdoin, you probably don't think that. Yeah, you probably not. Don't even try to be president if you go to Bowdoin, people. <laughs> and that's and that's like double if you go to Colby. Oh, man. Col- yeah. Colby, you might, as well, you might as well just throw yourself off a bridge. You go to Colby. Is that yeah. what you're trying to say, Mark? I, I uh, That was Carson Sestulli that said that. Um, <laughs> I went to Rensselaer, and we have no presidents yet. So, um, oh, there you go. I don't know. I, it, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon either. The book is In Pursuit of Penance. Is that right? In Pursuit of Penance, absolutely. The author is Dan Levitt and Mark. Oh yeah, let's talk about le- your last name, Armor. Armor. You know, it's funny. Uh, my uh, family, and this is comes comes from my my father's parents. Uh, Insisted that it was Armour, so you accent both syllables equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, um, I think in ensuing generations, um, people have become a little more lax about it, yeah. meaning that they don't really correct anybody. And Armour is what most people say, and that's fine with me. Okay, is that a uh, is that a Quebecois name? No, it is British, I British. believe. Okay, oh, yeah, all right. So it's like from the suit of armor. That's how how it's spelt. In uh, they have the funny spelling, right? So that's uh, oh yeah, they're British spelling. Yeah, they, well they'll put they'll put you in any word. Pretty much. Yeah. That's what happened. To, that's what happened to me. In pursuit of penance is the book. Uh, Mark Armor and Dan Levitt are the authors. And when uh, when and how can people buy this book, Mark Armor? Well, uh, it, it you know the publication date is April first. I expect it'll be it'll be out. Probably a month before that, um, 
and you can get it at your uh, local internet website of, <laughs> of choice. It's it's all available in all the places you buy books. Right. Um, unless you go to a bookstore, in which case you might have to order it because I don't know if it'll be there. But um, but it, chances are you can buy it, and it's on the Kindle. It'll be on the Kindle and other other things too. So uh, if you're new school. Um, we got your back. Right, and currently uh, at pursuitofpenance.wordpress.com, uh, you are counting down the top 25 GMs in history, and you've just uh, you've just today published the third overall. So we have two left. The third overall is Ed Ed Barrow Barrow Ed Barrow Barrow Ed Barrow, former GM of the Yankees in the uh, during the Bruce Gehrig years. That's right. So there's a couple guys left. I don't think you've. Uh, am I correct in thinking that um, that uh, Branch Rickey's name has not appeared yet? We have we have not deemed him uh, to be one of the 25 unless he's one or two. Unless he's one or two. Okay, very political, politically phrased. That's right. Yeah, that's very good. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It's been. Uh, I want to say this. It's. Uh, I I have seen you around. In some cases, I've been afraid of you because. Uh, you were being lauded by your colleagues at Saber, and I was just a um, well, I'm a I'm a shitty person anyway, but I was just a shitty person in the background, um, <laughs> and I was afraid of you. But uh, but it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Are you going to Chicago? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, when does that happen? Usually June something. I think it's well. I, I don't know if it's usually anything, but it's June this. It's always in the summer. Yeah. And this year, I don't have the dates in front of me, but it's late June. I bet, yeah, I, I'm the sort of person who's willing to go to uh, Chicago. Well, if uh, if people aren't busy fawning over me, um, yeah. well, I'll try free. and I'll try and cut through the crowds if I can, <laughs> if I can get to the feel, front. Feel free, and yeah. uh, and maybe you can, yeah, I I I think you can you can certainly entertain me with without any any difficulty. And then you have a friend because you and uh, Rob Nyer spend some time together, and then you have a third. Uh, a third guy who frequently goes on these trips with you. Who is that? Jeff Bauer. Yeah, Jeff Bauer. With regard to Jeff Bauer, I think he's a. Uh, I find I think he's great. I think he's very amusing. I will say it was like two sabers ago though. He came up to me and he said something to the effect of, "Oh, I see you got a little, uh, you got a little pot belly there." <laughs> yeah, I said. I said you go to hell, Jeff Bauer. That's what I that said. That sounds like that sounds like Jeff. And yes. he, I believe he he call he always calls you Karsten. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's that's something he has in common with my father-in-law. That maybe I don't know where he got it, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So Jeff and Rob and I um, usually take a uh, trip prior to the convention, yeah. a road trip, which which uh, brings us to the convention. And yeah. uh, I don't know what we'll do it this year because Rob just had a baby. So no, Rob has a Rob has a silly baby. I mean, those babies you've had them before, right? I have. Uh, yeah. It's it's in my it's in my rearview mirror. But Rob is he's starting. Um, he's starting it. So these uh, babies cannot do anything for themselves. Um, generally not. Yeah. No, it's kind of funny because you know you get a you get a a deer born in the wild and they're like running around in like two days, right? Right. And, yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like if first of all they have one of the longest gestation periods of any mammal, I think. Yes, and then they need all of that time after the birth to develop as well. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not it, the, it's not a perfect 
you know, people who are arguing in favor of intelligent design, this is an argument against it. Yeah, it's um, yeah. You don't want to think about it too much because uh, you, you don't have any offspring, do you? No, I have a uh, I have a dog that uh, about which I am uh, overly affectionate, but no, nothing, no humans. All right. Well, someday, don't, someday. Don't I'll, hey, Mark, you'll be the first to know. Well, that, that's good. I mean, I, I think I should be in the top ten anyway. You will, yeah, and I, I hope to be in the top ten of your best GM series. All right. All right. Uh, well, let's say goodbye. Uh, you stick around for one moment, but in the meantime, I'll say thank you, Mark Armour, and this is where you say uh, you're welcome. You, Carson. Yeah. I'll be on this pod anytime you wish. All right. That is Mark Armour, a resident of Corvallis, Oregon, author of In Pursuit of Penance uh, with uh, collaborator Dan Levitt. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Wait, wait, wait. I'm Carson. No, no, this is how it goes. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.